Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. So, hello to all of our listeners. Uh, this is an extra special treat for me today as we are joined by my former professor, Asamudia James who uh, joined the UNC School of Law faculty in 2021. Uh, Her writing and teaching interests include education, law, race, administrative law, and torts. She's the author of numerous articles, book chapters, popular press commentary, which all explore the interaction of law and identity in the context of public education. Her work has appeared in the NYU Law Review, Michigan Law Review, Minnesota Law Review, among others, as well as in the pages of the New York Times, Washington Post, and I think the LA Times too. So So it's my esteemed pleasure and honor to welcome to Educate Us, Professor Asmudia James. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. That was a very generous introduction, and I'm just delighted to be able to talk with you all today. Thanks. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I got to say again, so I, I got my PhD from the University of Miami and, and uh, my dissertation chair, my my grad chair, she suggested that I take this course in the law school. I'm like, oh, law. My mother always wanted me to be a lawyer. I don't want to take a law course. But I read the description and she's like, oh, no, you're going to love her. I promise. I'm like, OK, I trust you. She she knows me pretty well at this point. And by far, this is like one of the best courses I've probably ever taken in grad school, I must say. I don't know if I've ever said that to you, but truly it it did all the things, all the things, race, law, education, just the intersections. It was just incredibly stimulating and really important part of my academic journey. So I just want to publicly Aww. thank you. I appreciate that. Brilliant. And just uh, being able to steward such like thought-provoking conversations and, and academic um exercise and rigor in, you know, higher education institutions, which is not always an easy thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's always nice when we have grad students who are not law students, right? So having you in the classroom with some real expertise around education uh, is part of, if you thought the conversations were great, it was due in part to your capacity to also bring in expertise that law students just don't have. So the pleasure was ours. Well, thank you. Thank you. So this uh, time here couldn't be more timely with the onset of the most recent Supreme Court ruling. Um, So we, of course, know you've seen the ruling, paid attention to it, and and actually are are cited in it, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. Um, So from a legal standpoint, we just wanted to get your take, your assessment on the rulings, and uh, from your position, did they appear to be legally sound or really just politically motivated? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I actually think that on the basis of the legal rules around the use of race uh, and on the basis of the way in which the court is supposed to assess race, I don't think I would say the decisions were legally unsound. That is based on a very thin jurisprudence around equality in the United States. Diversity was always a stretch. I always found it to be an unstable legal principle. And it does not surprise me at all that we just had enough justices who were willing to say that outright and to do that work. Um, And so the work of dismantling it, I mean. And so, so, so it is legally sound in that the foundation for it was never what it should have been. And and Justice Brown Jackson does some of this work in her dissent, talking about what this should look like, right? How should we be thinking about race as a legal matter? Um, and so, so you know, I will say they're, they're not necessarily legally unsound. I will say that just because they are legally sound does not mean they are not also politically motivated, right? This is an ideologically driven opinion. This take on equality is ideologically driven. Um, and we had the the right balance on the court to use that ideology to, to advance a particular vision of equality. That's a thin one and is never going to get us justice. Um, and so, 
So that, you know, that question is hard to answer because I don't think it's either one or the other. Professor James, to that point about diversity and the way, if I'm saying it correctly, the way you're in your interpretation, like that was always going to be unsustainable, you know, in terms of precedent, you know, from, from your legal mind, what would be even at a local level, what may be more of a sustainable way to address, to address what I, cause my first reaction was that it seemed as though the concept of equality, I'm going to use that in quotes here, trumped equity in the eyes of the court mm-hmm. last week. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not. Obviously I'm not, you know, I'm not a practicing lawyer nor a law professor, but mm-hmm. in your, but for you though, what would be more of a sustainable model at a legal standpoint for is, and is that even possible for yeah. the recognition of trying to have more intentionality? Because that was the concept, like the very term of it, as I understand it was the recognition that the government must do something to, mm-hmm. to address this. But in, in your mind, what would be more of a sustainable approach? Yeah, the problem here is that the court has adopted formal equality instead of substantive equality. So formal equality says that everyone is treated exactly the same. And as long as the policy doesn't say no Blacks, you know, no Jews and no Mexicans, as long as it says everyone is welcome, then that that meets a vision of formal equality, regardless of what is actually happening in practice or how it is impacting people differently or how people are differently situated when they come to this moment where we're distributing valuable goods to members of society. A substantive equality vision or maybe an anti-subordination lens would place an affirmative obligation on the state, not only to ensure that on paper and formally people are not being treated differently on the basis of these categories, but that the state is affirmatively dismantling the structures, explicit or not, intentional or not, that are denying some people access while making it easier for others to get access. And so... In 2003, when uh, race-conscious admissions was challenged at University of Michigan, corporations, the military, um, they all asked for diversity, right? And the idea there was that we should think about race because it's better to have institutions that look like they're representative and our military will work better if we have all members of society here and corporations said things like well group think is bad and we'll be more successful if we can make sure we have diverse work teams and the american labor force will be more competitive in a global economy if they are used to working with people from all different walks of life and all of those things are true but there were also parties who said we also need justice that our institutions are illegitimate because they have consistently uh, denied access to some groups of people, that the criteria that universities over rely on are always going to have these disparate impacts, that we need remediation, right? that hundreds of years of denying people access to higher education have made it so that some people are now not here and we have to think about that and fix that. And parties asked for that and the court completely ignored those claims, right? An anti-subordination claim. What can we do to change the ways in which we have pushed people out? And the court ignored that. And so now, right, we look at if we have a system that says anytime race is there in the language, it's going to be bad. And you have university admissions policies that are saying we are considering race in some way. With the right court, you're going to see a policy like this struck down. And so ideally, we would have substantive equality. We would have an anti-subordination vision. We would have a, a more affirmative obligation of the state to do some of this work. Um, and there are still pockets where you can. So if you can prove that someone was intentionally discriminating, then the the response is that you can adopt some race-conscious remediation. The most interesting thing about this is that that is actually what was presented in this case, and the court didn't respond that way. Um, and so when you talk about what is a more practical way to address this, I'm at a loss right now because this is where the ideology part of it comes in. This court is uninterested in actually addressing race anymore. Can you expand on the idea of um, when well, you mentioned like substantive race, like just sort of that analysis and um, anti and I think you said anti-submission, I believe. Anti-subordination. Anti-subordination. Yeah. yeah if you can expand yeah. on those concepts. 
So the, the, the framework for all of this is equal protection, right? The 14th Amendment that says, says that we're not supposed to discriminate on the basis of race. And there's a real uh, division in thinking about what this means. I and a lot of other scholars uh, in this area think that equal protection was part of the Reconstruction Amendments, was 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. These are the amendments that outlawed slavery, that uh, um, responded to states' attempts to disenfranchise Black people, that made it difficult for Black people to vote, to participate in civic life. The Freedmen's Bureau was established during this time period. And so for those of us who think about that history, equal protection is actually a very race-conscious sort of intervention. The idea here was that we have been treating a group of people poorly on the account of race, and now we have to fix all of that. And so, um, so, so substantive equality would have been the Freedmen's Bureau. We have to take steps to undo some of this. Formal equality would have been, well, we've removed race from, we, we've told states they can't discriminate on this basis anymore. And so we're good, right? And so these two competing visions of what it means to facilitate equality have that 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 competition between those two visions has stayed with us. And I think you saw that reflected in the majority and dissenting opinions. And we've seen that reflected in a lot of these challenges to race conscious admissions. It's the idea that it's not okay for on paper, substantive justice tells us it's not just okay to remove words like these people can't be here on the formal policy, you actually have to take steps to bring people in to address the way in which discrimination is baked into institutional policies, to respond to unconscious bias, um, to dismantle symbols of exclusion. And this really matters in education, because education is so often the space in which we have made visible the ways in which we want to subordinate some people on the basis of race. Thank you, Professor James, for breaking all of that down for us. Um, going in further to the um, ruling, Chief Justice Roberts commented, uh, at the same time, as all parties agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed mm -hmm. as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And many universities are coming out with pledges of upholding this. Um, specifically, yeah. I know Harvard, you know, highlighted that on their page. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this? I am confused as to Robert's motivation. And I, I think, again, this is where the politics comes in. And so he wants to appear and wants to make the court appear as if they get it, right? They get that race still impacts people and and the people are maybe proud of their racial identity and the history that has come with that. And so he, he does not want to be in a position of saying none of this matters. Right? So he has to concede something, um, but is trying to suggest that even though this matters, universities cannot be in the business of formally accounting for that. And so he said that if a an applicant raises racial identity on an application, the university can consider that insofar as it reflects some other race neutral attribute, grit, tenacity, right? Interesting history, a family history that you wanna highlight and that the university cannot be in the business of suggesting that that person's racial identity in particular is valuable. Although if their story around race suggests that they would be extraordinarily hard workers, that that would, um, or, or even if they have a, a, a different viewpoint as a result, that would be useful for university atmosphere that uh, the university can consider that. I think this is a, a bit of a fiction um, and it goes to the inadequacy of the way we've been dealing with race all along. Um, yeah. Part of why I've always said diversity was stable is because it, it does it allow for us to talk honestly about how universities are thinking about race or how we're thinking about representation on campuses or whether there actually is a benefit to saying we have these groups of people here because it matters. Um, 
and that doesn't necessarily mean we assume they think one way or another, but our institutions are illegitimate if we consistently exclude groups of people. And we've never really been able to have that conversation. So I, I actually think that's just going to open the door to a lot more litigation because Roberts made the statement and you know, the very next day, Students for Fair Admissions and um, Bloom came out with their statement saying the court has spoken and universities cannot consider this and they are obligated to uphold the spirit of the ruling in addition to the letter of the ruling. Uh, and that was their message that we're watching and you were going to have to justify the admission of every single student of color here. We'll force you to. Uh, and you're going to have to give us a reason. And they won't have battles about statistics. And they'll be like, statistically, it's not possible for all these you know, Black people or brown people to be here. Unless, I mean, we're just going to fight about this endlessly, unfortunately. Professor James, as you said this, and I want to share this with our listeners, I, I want to expand on what you just mentioned when you mentioned Edward J. Bloom and you mentioned his last name. Um, for folks who have not been paying attention, Students for Fair, for fair um, Admissions, if you go to their website and you scroll down to the bottom of the page, it directs you actually to the email address of Edward J. Bloom. Bloom's an important person in this, in this story because as one of the faces for this organization, and by the way, just full disclosure, you'll see on the website a lot of pictures of people who are not white, primarily mm -hmm. Asian. Edward J. Bloom is a white person. He's also the person who helped bring before the court the voting rights converse, the um, a case involving Voting Rights Act, which in mm -hmm. James was 2013 or 2011. I'm forgetting when the decision came down. I think it was later, yeah, 2013 or 14, Shelby County. Yeah. Thank you. And what that, of course, Preston established was that some of the key elements of the Voting Rights Act were then removed. And a, a statement from the Chief Justice at the time was that we are essentially at a place where you know, race is no longer something we have to consider. Um, and of course, within days, about 10 or 11 states immediately then took back the state law, enacted state laws, everything from voter ID to all forms of restriction to make it harder for people of a certain race, let's be honest with ourselves, to vote. And what we just saw here is Preston that was established again. Um, hopefully, Professor, my assessment of that um, is consistent. But Bloom is a very important character in this story because he is known for someone who wants to bring forward the conversation of taking race out of the conversation around law and precedent, um, but only in a very selective way. So that's just a little disclaimer for our listeners because that person's name is quite important in this story. Yeah, and... Um... Bloom has gone on record about talking about wanting to go back to a time. And I think, I think he was so bold as to be like the 1950s or 1960s where we didn't think about race, right? Before we enacted these terrible policies and that time period never existed. There has never been a time in American history where race was not shaping social policy and individual outcomes across the country. Um, and so what he means is <clears throat> he wants to go back to a time where white people uh, could capitalize on whiteness and enjoy the benefits of whiteness unfettered by any obligation to think about the disadvantages other people were experiencing. He's quite a character. And he was very strategic in the plaintiffs that he selected for this case uh, that you know, gave the court a reason to, to strike down any consideration of race and admissions. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. We hinted at this a moment uh, earlier, but I was scrolling Instagram probably like the day of or day after and saw your post um, where you talked about the bittersweetness of you being cited in the mm -hmm. ruling by Justice Brown. Um, so we just wanted to give space for you to just share a little bit with us about what came up for you in that moment and you know how you've been like sort of, hate to use the word grappling, but how you've been like, you know, digesting that right the the, mm -hmm. the paradox and bittersweetness of like this context of this horrific ruling just to be frank but also the fact that your your legal work was cited in there and as part of the yeah. so 
beautiful. Congratulations, I must say that. (laughs) Probably not quite the congratulations you'd like in like the utmost way, but um, yeah, says a lot. So uh, we'd love to hear your your thoughts. Share with us like what that's been like for you. Yeah, she cited to I think a 2017 piece I wrote. It was titled "Valuing Identity." And it was, I, I was trying to make an argument about how lopsided um, the court has been or asymmetric the court has been in thinking about racial identity. And, and the court tends to think about minoritized identity as always bad. Why would you want to be labeled Black, right? Wouldn't it be terrible for the state to acknowledge your Blackness or, or to, to a lesser extent, although quite significant thinking about being Asian or Latino um and or any other minoritized group and the court does not talk similarly about whiteness in this way and so it doesn't talk about the burden of people assuming that you were benefiting from some measure of white privilege um or thinking about a history of domination that whites have either explicitly acted out or been complicit in or benefited from in some way, or the court doesn't think about white racial identity that way. And I was thinking about that this this asymmetry has led to weird rulings by the court and a, a history of talking about being a minority as if that's a terrible thing. And if we think it's a terrible thing, then of course we get to a conclusion that thinking about race admissions would be terrible, right? Because race, minoritized race is always a bad thing. And so I wrote this in 2017 and she cited it for, for the idea that the court is denying advocates of color some measure of dignity. That is, you are making it so that they um, cannot have, they cannot fully honor or think about or recognize their own racial history or racial identity or the, the legacy in their parents that has been centered around who they are in terms of um, as, as members of racial identities. Um, and I think so, so, so Roberts tries to create a space for that anyway, but her point is a well-taken one. That is, you want groups of people to stop talking about something that matters to them. Um, and my argument was that whites took minoritized racial identity and made it a bad thing. And despite that, people of color have developed pride and dignity in those identities and then have used those identities to headline political movements, right? To demand that the country make good on its promises of equality for everyone. And that thinking about race, ethnicity, gender, keeping those identities forefront is what has allowed us to make some of the advancements in equality that we have made. And so she cited for that proposition, right? This framework denies people that measure of dignity, denies the, the value of identity. And she cited to that. And that was very exciting for me. I actually did not initially know that she cited to it. I was popping off tweets about the opinion. And then I happened to come across a tweet that said some great scholars were cited in this very strong dissent and my name was listed there. And I, I, I was shocked. So I ran a search for my name and the opinion. There was no Osamudia. Then I ran a search for James, my last name. There were 29 Jameses in the opinion because she had used the hypo and she, one of the people in her hypo was named James. Um, so I went through them one by one and saw that one of them was actually O.James, which is my name in the citation. So that was really exciting. As a law professor, that is a very big moment. Uh, it, it, you want your work to be read by people. You want it to be cited to by other legal scholars. And, you know, they're, they're the, the most, the most um, revered legal scholars, or, right, or legal thinkers in the country are members of the Supreme Court. And so that was really exciting. But it was also devastating because it was in this amazing descent to an awful majority opinion. Uh, and this was um, around an issue that I've been writing and thinking about since the beginning of my career. Um, and although the majority opinion maybe opened up more avenues for me to talk and critique and think, uh, it was devastating to see the court take the opportunity it was given to attempt to dismantle thinking about race and admissions. Now, and again, I've critiqued diversity. I think there are better ways to do this for sure, but it's not clear to me that our country has ever had the appetite for the better ways. And diversity was the most palatable version of thinking about race that it seemed the country could stomach. 
And so the court shut the door on that. And so the, the future does not seem very clear to me. Thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, as you were talking, you reminded me of our course and just the just salient points that you would raise about whiteness. I don't think people really grapple with. They think about skin color as opposed to like this construct that drives people's mm -hmm. thoughts, actions, beliefs, biases, mm -hmm. et cetera, ways of being in the world. Um, and no one problematizes that. Um, but mm -hmm. the other thing I wanted to just, we, we like to use this space to sort of, as the name implies, educate our listeners, use the term minoritized. This is something else that I mm -hmm. kind of gathered from that time period of being at uh, UM. Um, I'd love for you to share with listeners kind of what that actually means. Is that as, as much as I get a chance, I try to share different language with people because I think language really matters. Um, mm -hmm. And this is one that I think people are not as familiar with. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit about what that means, like a, a minoritized identity. Absolutely. And I actually want to, I think I learned that language from engaging in ed scholarship and sociology scholarship around race, right? That is not something that's standard in the law. And it's minoritized, right? Putting an I-Z-E-D at the end uh, suggests that there is an active process of making one group um, lower on the hierarchy, right? Or at the margins of our society. And it moves away from the idea that being a minority is just about numbers, right? You can have numbers, but still not be centered. You can have numbers, but still be on the margins. You can have numbers, but still be um, disadvantaged by state policies, right? You can have numbers, but still be seen as inferior by the people around you. And so, um, and so sometimes when I think about Asian Americans in higher education uh, and the idea, well, uh, if there's a lot of them, does that mean they're no longer a minority? And that's, that's not the case. In fact, they are a minoritized group. That is, they are always considered different from whiteness. Whiteness becomes the baseline and all of us are all compared to whiteness. They are not fully white. And so there's going to be a particular experience that happens as a result of that. That's what it means to be minoritized. And that really gets away from the being minority is just about how many votes you have or how many numbers. It's actually an experience the same way that as you, you know, clearly just articulated that whiteness is an experience. It's a baseline. It's a viewpoint. Um, it's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of looking at particular groups. And it's a way that structures our daily life. And that's very different from actual skin color, or even the individual interactions that people have on a day-to-day -day basis. Among the tweets that were posted last week in reactions of the case, shortly after, was one from a an African-American male who heads up a charter school network. And, the, mm -hmm. and essentially what he was saying was that, because I don't have the tweet in front of me, was that the legacy of this decision is that no longer this was was he was getting at no longer, you know, as a black person in some spaces, do I get looked at and questioned, mm -hmm. you know, whether I belong yeah. there. Um, in your view, though, when, as we're having this conversation about like just sustainability, but mm -hmm. just legacy and the legacy of racism, if we're I mean, just being honest, and that, that it's not going away anytime soon. It still needs to be active mm -hmm. efforts to confront it. Is that a fair assessment or is that potentially because uh, full disclosure, like my reaction to that was, I still think that's not going to address necessarily the challenge of racism. I know that necessarily wasn't what his point was, sure. but I think you could still be viewed as the other in the spaces. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that people of color don't belong in particular institutions, that is nothing to do with race conscious uh, state initiatives that started a long time before we trying to fix that. And it's going to continue a long time after we stop race conscious policies. And so the idea that the reason why people think you're less than is because they wonder whether you got in because of affirmative action or race conscious admissions. I, I just don't think that's true. People make assumptions about hierarchy and inferiority and status of groups. And that is shaped by the books we read, the movies we watch, the attitudes our parents have, the guests who come in our home, the the teachers that were given, um, the, you know, billboards, media, right? Everything about our society is operates to place us all on a racial hierarchy, a gender hierarchy, uh, and a class hierarchy, right? A hierarchy in terms of sexuality, and um, and so 
you know, our little race conscious admissions is not the thing that's driving these attitudes. I'd make a couple of other points about this. Um, that there's something here about how we respond. How, when, when we sense that people have made these assumptions about us, how do we respond to that? Right? Do we internalize that? Do we place the blame where it belongs, which is with the person who is adopting and potentially acting on these attitudes? Do we blame the group that's being subject to that? And um, Ellie Mistel, who's um, a, a really popular commentator online, he's written books and there's a lot of um, media commentary, has talked about Thomas uh, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court um, and saying, Thomas, Thomas, Clarence Thomas has made this argument several times. And um, Ms. Stoll's response was that for people of color and black people in particular, learning to properly assess that experience is, he said, I think he said it was like the, the final step to like actual liberation. That is, he's, he'd experienced it too, but you need to understand where that's coming from and place that where it belongs, which is at the, the feet of white supremacist structures and conventions and norms in our society. And he, and, he, and he lamented that Thomas blames black people for that um, and has internalized some of that. And that's the tragedy of a figure like Clarence Thomas. Um, and so um, so I, 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 I wanna make that comment about understanding where that comes from and who should be blamed for that. The other thing I wanna say about that is that in long-term studies of graduates of color from elite institutions. They, this is the, the work of Shape of the River, right? Talking to them about what that experience has been. And many graduates of these institutions do say, yes, there were moments where I could tell that people had made assumptions about me and maybe linked that, assumed I was a, a, a beneficiary of these programs. But at the end of the day, they still preferred to have gotten that opportunity to capitalize on the professional and social benefits that came from it and to pass those benefits on to their children, right? They prefer that experience than to have never have been there at all. And so there's a real paternalism, a streak of paternalism that runs here, right? That is telling people of color, well, we know what's better for you. Don't you wish that you wouldn't have to deal with this experience? And I'll tell you, it's not a nice experience, but I much prefer the opportunities that access gives me. And I will properly manage that experience. That is, I will understand that it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the people around me um, and that eliminating race conscious admissions is not going to end that. Speaking of what this, you know, decision and where it might be going, obviously we can see some writing on the wall. And you mentioned earlier that there will be some battles and we're in it you know, for, for the fight right now. And mm -hmm. um, in one article in the New Yorker, they were uh, titled the um, end of affirmative action. There was a, a study done that when they shifted away from race, gender, and ethnicity in admissions in California, they saw the number of black and Latino students enrolled at its most selective schools, Berkeley and UCLA mm -hmm. dropped by 40%. Do you think this is a trend we'll see nationwide? I do. I think we're going to see <clears throat> admissions drop, not just because universities are not thinking about how race is shaping their applicant pool, who applies experiences of people in that pool, but because students will think about those institutions as ones that are hostile to them or places where they're not welcome and they will apply less. And so it's not just, oh, look, you can think about race and you can't get in. Um, it's also that students will take themselves out. And this is why it's important to think about pipelines, because um, students have thoughts about where they belong and where they don't belong. Um, and so I do think we're going to see a drop there, unfortunately, as universities try to figure it out. I think some universities are happy to sort of get an excuse and not have to think about this anymore. Um, and students shift their application processes. I, I also wanna, I wanna note that at, at these elite institutions, right, all the applicants are all qualified. And so these are students, whether they're black or Latino or Asian or white, who could get into the most selective institutions anywhere. And so there's this assumption that there are students here who just couldn't possibly thrive at these places. It's, Right, they're all qualified, but the, the universities are making 
they're admitting a very small number of people and it's coming down to the most subjective assessments of what those people can bring and what those people can do. And sometimes universities do think about what does our class look like, right? Um, and so do we wanna see more balance in terms of representing our community or our country? And also, yes, I wanna think about how race has shaped uh, outcomes here, how, how um, it might have shaped things like standardized test performance, but whether there are other aspects of this person's application that are compelling that suggest to us that they're going to thrive here and thinking about race is relevant to that, to that inquiry. Um, so I want to get that out there because I, I want to make sure that it's clear that listeners understand that we are not talking about people who cannot cut it at these institutions. All of them can. Many people who don't get in could have thrived and many people who get in might not do all that great, right? But these people are all, they meet the qualifications for admissions. Um, so I do think we're going to see a decrease in the number of Blacks and Latinos in particular, maybe a slight increase for Asian Americans, because I do think there is something going on there in terms of discrimination. We can talk about that in more detail. Um, and then we'll see the biggest increase for whites, which is the pattern that we saw in California and which is what this case has always been about, or what these attacks on race conscious admissions have always been about, maximizing admissions for whites, um, at the cost of the slots for Blacks and Latinos, and then based on sort of proximity for whiteness, providing more access for Asian Americans, but fairly limited. To end on a more sort of positive note, what would you say would be the hope you would lay out for this country if we were to really take a, the better ways that you mentioned, what would that look like and what would that be? So there are multiple versions of this vision. Um, and, and, and we could think broadly, we could take, we could, we could think specifically at the university level. Ideally, universities would end their over-reliance on standardized test scores and GPA. Um, these are factors that track very closely to versions of privilege, be it racial privilege, class privilege, and gender privilege. And the universities rely on these factors. And as a result, right, it becomes harder to admit uh, poor and working class people. It becomes harder to admit women um, or, or um, let, let's say people who are not men, right, or not presenting as men. Um, it becomes harder to um, admit people of color. And so ideally universities would move away from that. Um, and I think, you know, the Harvards of the world are going to stay Harvards of the world. Um, and I'm not saying universities should not think about that, but they rely on them very heavily. Um, and that's part of the problem. But, you know, Harvard is going to stay an elite institution an elite opportunity with, you know, a, a just the, the amount of resources they have. I joke, it's like Harvard, University of Chicago, like they have more money than God. Right, like, like the resources that they have, and they would use those resources to um, make sure that greater swaths of our country are getting the opportunities that they can provide. Right? Ideally, though, we'd also think about um, K to twelve education, finally undoing schooling segregation, which is linked to housing segregation, which we have never addressed. Uh, right, and we would think about the the issues in the pipeline that make it harder for some people to be ready for a Harvard, to be able to take opportunity um, of the, the opportunities that Harvard has. Um, you know, and then thinking even bigger, we would rethink equality jurisprudence, adopt a more substantive vision of equality, think about anti-subordination, finally get at implicit bias, think about institutional um, discrimination or bias, right? And that, that would help as well. And, in my perfect world, it's not that we cannot have elite opportunities, right? We can, it's that we would finally create a system where everyone was actually competing fairly for those slots. Um, and then even then acknowledging that a lot of people who could be here and who might deserve to be here are not going to be here because we have a limited number. But right now it's so skewed. We, we cannot have an admission system that's at all selective um, without acknowledging that race and gender and class are really driving who 
gets those opportunities. So I feel I was a little bit of a cop out. Um, and so, so most practice, so I, and I have to admit it is because I don't know what the next steps are. I foresee more litigation. And as some litigation at the K to 12 level has shown, even when admissions or institutions adopt race neutral policies and they think about things like class and geography, they have still been sued. So the end goal here is actually dismantling a commitment to equality. And race conscious admissions is just one stop on that path. And so I actually am worried about what the immediate future looks like. Thank you so much. This has been so rich. I think um, I, I can speak for all of us and say that we are like deeply, deeply appreciative of you taking time to talk with us and our listeners and just share your insights. Congratulations once again. Thank you for all you. that you're doing to shape uh, legal minds that are coming out of these institutions and hopefully going forth into the world to do great work. We'd love to invite you to just share with our listeners how they can uh, follow your work, keep in touch with, sure. follow, you know, follow through with what um, you're putting out into the world. So social media is whatever the platforms, please do share. Yeah, I am Osamudia. I think I'm Prof Osamudia J on Twitter. Um, and I'm Osamudia James at UNC. Uh, and so if you go to um, sort of law.unc.edu and look at the faculty profiles, you can find me there. And there are links to most of my work there. And so when I do write something, I try to promote it on social media. Um, sometimes, you know, my, my relationship, as with most people with social media, can run hot and cold. So sometimes I'm there and sometimes I'm not. <laughs> um, but that's probably the easiest way to get it. I mean, people can also always just email me at ojames at unc.edu. And I'm always happy to engage with people about their thoughts about these issues and the work that scholars like me do in this area. So thank you for the opportunity to let people know how they can reach me. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Of course, that was our conversation with Professor Asamudia James at UNC School of Law. Now, I'm, of course, back with my t with just my friends and colleagues to talk about an incredible conversation stacy said before i hit the record button here um just swimming uh just swimming with reflections and thoughts it's kind of the same place i'm in i'm in the same pool with you here um for you both and stacy I'll, I'll go to you first because as, as you're in the pool with me on this um what were what was probably the most what felt like the most clear or like the biggest takeaway you had that just sort of not cemented necessarily, but just kind of like open your eyes even further to what's going on, or maybe even confirm some of the things that you've thought previously about these precedents and, you know, where we are in the legal world, as we talk about, I mean, legal education world about the conversation of race and diversity in terms of precedent. Yeah. And I think, you know, what confirmed further was the shakiness of the idea of diversity in general, um, in the legal world and how, you know, when, when professor James mentioned, and now we had a group of justices who were willing to kind of name that and, and challenge that, uh, in, in this court decision. And that confirms and also, um, raises fears. I mean, these are the fears that I had, uh, when president Trump was elected, and I realize that he will be able to appoint Supreme Court justices. And the moments have been there, you know, last year, Roe Ro versus Wade and, and now and, and others in between. And now we're here with affirmative action. And as Professor James mentioned, this is going to be a lot of litigation. A lot of uh, situations will be vulnerable. Um, especially in communities and schools where really trying to have more equitable admissions and, and consider and be race conscious and such. And so I think 
those fears that began in 2016 are 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 coming um to life Patrice, what comes up for you so many things (laughs) so many things one the concept of equality so you know you stacy you talked about just the diversity piece which i totally totally agree with and then i think there's also the conversation around equality and how just false it is we can't this country cannot really focus on equality because sameness has never it's just not it's not realistic in any way shape or form um equity is really what we need to be focused on and i just i don't know i that ruling more than a lot of these other things that have been transpiring left me i don't want to say a little hopeless but it's just that constant feeling in this country of you know taking two steps forward and 95 back, you know? Um, it's exhausting to say the least. So I, I think of that and I think of, um, you know, I've seen this on like Instagram and, and other places, like the idea that we're getting rid of affirmative action, but not like legacy admissions, not like, oh, my, my, my name's on the building, so I get to be admitted not, oh, my father made this huge endowment and now I get, you know, so it, the, the farce of the entire thing just, you know, it's, it's, it's assaulting almost, you know, it's just like cons- consistent reminders that, you know, the things that this country is supposedly founded on are really just, a, they're an illusion at best. Yeah. That's, that's the word that sits to me too, is that, is the idea of illusion is that, um, you know, like one of my first reactions and obviously I, you know, pay attention to college sports was, you know, if we're so worried about this small number of non-white students in these schools, especially the university of Michigan, it's like, there's a ton of scholarships on the football team. We could be talking about if we want to have an honest conversation about this, but that's not what we're doing. So, you know, we're the limited seats already available. Not, I mean, limited in the sense like that's, that's a reality. It's a small number of seats. That's the one we're going after. Because the perception here, and, and I thought Professor James, like we've all talked about this before, is, and she just shed light on this, is like this continues to be a matter of perception. If I look in a classroom, and while there may only be you know five black students there, if you question why they're there, and are they taking the seats from an Asian person or a white person, well, congratulations, you're racist. But more importantly, you're ignoring the fact that on all measures to get into that college, they're on this, they're performing as well as any other student. But the otherism essentially was con- was codified by the court. Um, and it's always weird to me because the unspoken racism that exists um, in terms of legacy admissions, uh, in terms of just the other various ways that students get into, into college, it, it, because it, it's invisible. Right. I mean, we all know it's there. We all feel it. But because it's not it's not written anywhere, there's no smoking gun, it seems that's fine. But when there's an intentional effort to try to right this wrong, that's the one we point to and say, well, that's that you can't do. But I but I, I mean, Professor James also does a you know, did a great job of explaining that this model, as she explained about about diversity, at least in the court's handling of it as a precedent was shaky. And it was going to be hard to maintain and build on. And now, Stacey, as you said, politically, you know, we're in a place where anything that seems vulnerable, such as the precedent of Roe Ro versus Wade, at least at the federal level, it's going to get attacked. Um, you know, where I left hopeful was I thought Professor James does an incredible job of of explaining that, you know, there are ways to address it. I thought her explanation of just different efforts and really naming you know, these different ways um, to understand these matters at hand and like what legally could be constructed as, as ways to meaningfully address it is a, is a hope for us. I don't think at the Supreme court level, it exists not with the makeup of the court. And I don't think it exists even at the federal level with the makeup current makeup of Congress, but it does give me hope that at the city level um, at the state level that people are paying attention. And that there's ways to address this. And again, at the end of the day, the back door that that Justice Roberts puts forward that, you know, they didn't want to say outright that race cannot play a role in admissions. 
essentially is like, well, it's still going to show up in essays. And whatever that means, colleges like Harvard, who did come out and say right after, like, yeah, we'll follow the yeah, we'll follow the precedent. But there was sort of a wink wink to there. It's like, yeah, we also heard the other side of that argument, too, from the chief justice. Therein lies whatever the the, the pieces of hope I still have. Um, that just felt like a conversation. I mean, it's funny, like all these are conversations on this show. But that felt like a just a really genuine conversation. And I, I, I laughed because obviously when we send this over to editing, I, I warned them. I said, I'm just telling you now, there was going to be overlaps. There's missteps because we're all just no different than sitting around having a conversation with Professor James at a, at a coffee table. Like this felt like organic, um, which will sometimes be messy. And and it, it simply is what it is. Um, but it's what I hope would be from from this kind of conversation. So um i left i left educated you know i left um as a person who who's just in that class with you patrice like i felt like just like yeah like that's that was an incredible like that wasn't a lecture though like this was like almost like a small classroom that we're just meaningfully having a, a dialogue with the instructor who's just bringing us in and explaining it to us in a way that you don't have to be a legal expert to understand a this you know what this means for you but b what actually is going on here so i I'm I'm simply grateful and awed. Yeah, Nick, I I think that is well said. Grateful and awed is is very true of a professor. You know, James put forth, and also an invitation when we asked her what is her hope, and and she began to talk about potential visions of better ways. Uh, that felt like an invitation, and and she said, you know, I don't know all the steps forward, and and she doesn't need to, right? Like we all can come together and kind of do that. So I think there's the invitation and hope for us is how do we continue to uplift each other's voices and support each other's vision for for the America we want, for the education system we, we need. Um, and so I think I was appreciative of that. Thank you for listening to the Educate Us podcast. Subscribe to the show available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, please, please leave us a review or comment wherever you can. We want to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, or just want to be part of the conversation, email us at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. This has been a production of Leon Media Network. I'm Nick Saveri. I'm Patrice Swenson. And I'm Stacey Schultz. We'll see you next time.